1 Samuel chapter 10, if you'll join me there. As we left off last time, God has revealed to Saul at this point that he is the individual that has been chosen by God to give to the people the desire that they had for a king. And so at this point, God, as well as Samuel the prophet, the judge of Israel at this time, and Saul seem to really be the only individuals that are aware that Saul was the one that was selected to be Israel's first king as the result of this desire among the people complaining and somewhat beseeching Samuel that he would give to them a king like all the other nations. But as Samuel uh, announces this to Saul, as Saul's on his way back home, a couple of things transpire prophetically that Samuel had told Saul would to kind of confirm to Saul that this was indeed God's calling for his life and yet Saul it seems kept this to himself as he went back to his hometown he didn't disclose to them exactly what had been told to him the matter of the kingdom he kind of kept that to himself but now as we come to 1 Samuel chapter 10 sort of where we pick up leaving off from last time in verse 17 at this point now Samuel is going to call the people of Israel together and basically announce to them on a national level that this is the king that God has selected for them so if you look with me there in verse 17 of 1 Samuel chapter 10 it says then Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah and he said to the children of Israel, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms and from those who oppressed you. But you have today rejected your God, who himself saved you from all your adversities and all your tribulations. And you have said to him, No, set a king over us. And the idea is instead set a king over us. So Samuel, as he's about to announce to the people who their king is, who God has selected as the one that would suit really their desire for what they wanted for a king. Again, remember, they wanted a king so that they could be like all the other nations. And so therefore God gives to them this first king of Israel, who in many ways is very symbolic of what the kings in the other nations would be like. And so therefore, as the result of that, God's about to announce this. And here Samuel reminds them, notice as he's speaking for the Lord in the first person, the Lord reminds the people up until this time for hundreds of years, I was able to lead you. I was able to help you. I was able to deliver you and save you and assist you no matter what took place. I was your king. I was ruling over you. There was no visible king. There was no man on the throne. It was a theocracy. God was governing and ruling his people as he intended to. And basically what God is trying to remind them at the onset of this announcement is up to this point, there's been no need for a king. I've been more than able to help you. He reminds them of their history here in verse 18 and 19. He reminds them here, he says, I was the one who brought you up out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians. God's saying, I, you didn't need a military leader. You didn't need a king to do that for you. I was your king. I was your ruler. I heard your cry and came and answered you and helped you as well from being delivered from the hand 
hand of all the kingdoms that would rise up against you. But he says, yet, verse 19, today you have rejected your God who was the one who had saved you. God says, I was the one who, when you had adversities and tribulations, I was the one who came to your rescue. And yet now you've come to a place where, in a sense, they were saying to God, who you are and what you do for us isn't sufficient. So therefore, we need the arm of flesh. We need human assistance. And in a sense, they were saying to God, uh, we are not content any longer with what you do and what you've done for us. We need to turn to the aid of man because we need to be like the other nations. And they wanted to, in a sense, have the ways of the world as a part of their way. And really, we're rejecting the way of faith. And, and that is a difficult thing. It's hard to trust in an unseen God, it's hard to trust in an unseen source of provision if we need financial help or assistance or deliverance if we're expecting for help to come through maybe because we're facing some adversity in our life personally or some tribulation to believe that we can actually pray to an unseen God and that we can trust that there is an unseen deliverer and savior and provider and king and help who can come to our aid and to our rescue. It's much easier to believe in what we can see with our eyes naturally and God here is speaking of their rejection really of a life of faith as they said no that's not sufficient anymore we want you to set a king over us so God says to them verse 19 now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clan so they were to come together so God could begin to sort through and identify that this was who he selected for them according to what their desire was for a human leader and when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near the tribe of Benjamin was chosen so out of the 12 tribes it's now selected that Benjamin would be the tribe from which this king would come and then verse 21, narrowing it down further, and when he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their individual families, the family of Matri was chosen. And then Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. But when they sought him, notice, he could not be found. So they identified from the tribe to the family, to the actual individual uh, person himself, Saul, son of Kish, is the one God had chosen. So they're now seeking out, where, where's Saul? Where is this king, the son of Kish, Saul, that God has selected for us? They couldn't find him. So verse 22, they did what's good when you can't find something. They prayed. Uh, they inquired of the Lord. They couldn't figure it out for themselves. They couldn't find what they were looking for. And wherever you can't find what you're looking for, the best thing to do is to pray uh, and to ask God to help. And so they inquired of the Lord further, saying, has the man come here yet? And the Lord answered. And he always does when we inquire of him. That's a good thing. There he is hidden among the equipment. Now, keep in mind, the next verse is even going to reiterate this. Remember, when we saw Saul of Tarsus originally introduced to us last time, the Bible told us that he was more handsome than any man in Israel. Kind of hard to miss someone like that. I mean, this was the GQ, you know, most attractive man of the year in Israel. This was who Saul of Tarsus was. That's a pretty identifiable mark. He's got a face. It also said that basically he was tall, dark, and handsome. He was head and shoulders in height above everyone else. So he's very clearly 
a, a identifiable individual because in a lot of ways his physical appearance, his stature, his impressive presence set him apart from everyone else in the nation. The Bible itself told us that, but yet now though he's identified by name and they're looking for him, they can't find him. And it says there he is. God answers. God knows where people are when we don't. He's hidden among the equipment. Now, question there. Is that Saul's humility that he's not presenting himself or promoting himself and he's kind of just blended and hidden among the equipment? Is that his humility or perhaps I kind of lean more towards this is that not maybe humility, but is that an indication as he's hidden among the equipment that what he's basically doing is hiding from the call of God? Because he knows what God has called him to do. That was clearly indicated to him. And you remember when he was called uh, in uh, the, the uh, announcement by Samuel to him of what he was supposed to do. He said back in chapter 9, verse 21, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? My family, the least of the families of the tribe of Benjamin. Why then do you speak to me like this? So in other words, he sensed his own insignificance. He's thinking in his mind, why would God want to use someone like me? And how could God possibly do something through my life? I'm, I'm incapable, I'm insufficient, I'm just an insignificant individual. And this is always a good thing when God puts his call upon a person's life. And the Bible tells us that God often chooses the foolish things of the world, the weak things of the world, the things that are not. And, and so therefore, a lot of times when the call of God goes to a person's life, the natural human response is, I'm not able to do that. I'm not capable to do that. I, I, I don't see how I would be able, like whether it was Moses, whether it's David, whether it's Saul here. So as we see Saul here hiding among the equipment or hidden among the equipment, I think potentially he himself is hiding among the equipment because I think he's hiding from the call of God. And that's never a good thing to do. And that's something that we all have to be careful of because sometimes because of our own insecurities, we fail to answer the call of God upon our life. And we know what God's called us to do, but because we can't get over, which really is nothing other than an issue of faith at the end of the day when you boil it down. It's not so much an issue of, well, it's just humility. Sometimes, you know, humility can become a form of false humility in a twisted or perverted way where a person basically is just an insecurity, not saying, God, yes, I'm insufficient, but your word says that, God, you can make me sufficient. And so, therefore, I'll answer your call in faith. I don't know how you're going to do this through my life. This seems hard for me to do. I can't do it in my own ability. But, Lord, I'm not going to hide from your calling on my life. And perhaps, I don't know, maybe that is something for one of you tonight. Maybe you clearly know what God is identifying that you're supposed to do in your life. And yet you're kind of hiding out among the equipment. And you're delaying the process of God and how he wants to use you in your life and perhaps further equip you and prepare you because you're really sort of hiding from the calling of God and what he selected you to do and maybe identified that you are called to do in the same way Saul was called now to rise up and to lead the people of Israel as a king. So there he is hiding. So verse 23, notice again, you can't hide from God's calling long term anyway because look, it says they ran and they brought him. 
from there. And when he stood among the people, again, notice he was taller than all the people from his shoulders upward. So he was just like the kind of king all the other nations would love to have, impressive in his presence. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see whom the Lord has chosen that there is no one like him among the people? He was certainly a, a very impressive, charismatic uh, person in his stature and his appearance. So all the people shouted with excitement, long live the king. They finally have their first king. And Samuel explained to the people all the behavior of royalty or what it means to be a king. And he wrote it in a book and he laid it up before the Lord. Now, hold your finger here in 1 Samuel chapter 10. And if you would turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Now, we can't be certain, but it's very likely when it says here that Samuel wrote out for the people all the behavior of royalty and put it in a book to be retained as a record before the Lord and the people. It's very likely that this is some of what was recorded all the way back from Deuteronomy 17, if you remember, this is about 400 years prior to this time when God knew in advance, and this shows you again the nature of God, God knew four centuries beforehand that his people eventually would grow discontent with having him as their king and ruler and that they would long for a human king and a monarchy as all the other nations. So Deuteronomy 17, here we get some of God's instruction all the way hundreds of years earlier, prophetic instruction for a king when they didn't even have a king until this day when Saul comes on the scene to be the first king of Israel. Look in Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. Moses here speaking says, when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Boy, does God know us well? Amazing. 400 years in advance, and God knew what the people of the nation were going to do. And that's just a, a very insightful thing to realize. God knows us that well and, and, and knows what we're going to do four days from now, 40 days from now. That's why when God speaks to you, believe what he says and act upon it. Because God knows what's going to go on in our hearts. God knows what's going to happen in our circumstances in the days ahead. And then he said to them, verse 15, here's the instruction now for royalty. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren. So it was to be a Jew, a fellow Israelite. You shall set as a king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. But, and here's instruction for the king, personally in that position of leadership, God gave particular instruction for the one in that role. He shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Now, horses would be a representation of power. And so God's saying, listen, I don't want the king to be consumed with constantly trying to increase, increase his power and his influence. And it's very interesting, the three things that God forbids the king to do is to be careful in the area of power, of women, and of wealth. 
And is that not interesting? Because so often these tend to be real trigger points and trouble spots for individuals who are in roles of leadership. How oftentimes when someone who's in a role of leadership, whether it's governmental, whether it's spiritual, whether it's in business, and they end up having a failure, a moral failure, or they shipwreck, or they compromise in some way, an error in that role of leadership, oftentimes this is the areas that it ends up happening in. There becomes an issue with not being able to handle power and becoming abusive and corrupt in their use of power or getting themselves involved in an unhealthy relationship with women and using their position for that or not being able to handle wealth and influence. And here, so God is warning, they shall not multiply horses, verse 17, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away and he shall not multiply silver or gold for himself. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from one before the priests and the Levites. So the king, notice, was to make a handwritten copy of these things. Now was he to make a handwritten copy of just the law of the king or was he to make a handwritten copy of the entire Torah? Uh, we don't know. Either way, it's very interesting. God wanted it to be a very personal thing for the king to have his own personal handwritten record of what the word of God said regarding his life to help keep him in a personal place of adherence to the word of God. And it shall be, it says, when he sits on the throne, verse 18, he would write a copy. Verse 19, and it shall be with him. And notice, he shall not just have a copy of it, but he actually, imagine this, was to read what God's word said. <laughs> He wasn't just to have his own copy of it, but he actually was to read it all the days of his life, would to God. If that would be a rule for government nowadays, if part of someone becoming a mayor or a senator or, or a governor or a president or a cabinet member, okay, this is part of the requirement. Be careful in these three areas. And also, we would like you to make a handwritten copy of the word of God for yourself and read it throughout your entire time in office. I wonder if government would be a little bit different shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord, that he would have a reverence for God and be careful to observe all the words of the law and these statutes. And this was why, look what it would do for him. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren. It would keep the king humble and a proper perspective towards other people and not arrogant or haughty in some way where he began to abuse his power over the people he ruled. And then he might not turn aside from the commandment, get into moral failure and corrupt living. He may not turn aside to the right or the left that he may, not prolong, he may prolong his days in his kingdom and his children in the midst of Israel. So come back with me to 1 Samuel chapter 10. Perhaps that is very likely what is being described here when it says that he was writing down what the behavior of royalty was to be and they write it in a book on this day as they announce who their first king would be. And Samuel, then it says, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 25, sent all the people away every man to his house and Saul at this point now goes back home to Gibeah and it says and valiant men went with him whose hearts God had touched but some of the rebels said how can this man save us so they despised him and brought him no presents but Saul the Bible says held 
his peace. So as he is identified and announced as the king who would be ruler of the people. Notice there are two responses. Some individuals, their hearts are touched by God and they desire to respond to his leadership, to, in a sense, rally behind him, to become loyal followers and, and a support to him. It says there were some individuals whose hearts God had touched, valiant men who went with him. And I think that's a beautiful thing. What it describes there in verse 26 is how God prompts at times the hearts of men to rally behind those who he calls to leadership. And this beautiful picture here of how valiant men, it says, went with Saul because God had touched their hearts. That is, God had touched their heart in a way that they had a heart's desire to want to embrace the man that God had raised up, the one who God had put in a place of authority. And, and there was this heart of being a support person, someone to come alongside. And, and I think this is something that the Lord does. I think at times when God establishes leaders that the Lord will do this he will prompt the hearts of individuals to recognize those who he has called to a place of leadership and God will stir the hearts certainly of particularly I think certain individuals who have a real heart to say I believe God's hand is upon your life and I want to be a part of that and I want to come alongside of that and so here the Lord puts this into the hearts notice it was God had touched their hearts and they want to therefore acknowledge and support him as a leader. But then, of course, there were those who rebelled against God's authority and what he was doing. And they became instantly critical. Who's this guy? This farmer? Who is this individual, Saul, son of Kish? How is this man going to save us? We could do a better job than this farm boy. I mean, we have, we have some business background. This is just a farm boy. He's you know, looking for lost donkeys. And now all of a sudden he's the king of Israel. And so there were those who were critical and despised or disesteemed him. But Saul just held this peace. Now, as I look at this in verse 26 and 27, I, I think though it's a picture of Saul's being acknowledged as the king that was selected to rule over the people, it's true. I think a picture of King Jesus as well and how people are always going to have a different response to the Lord. Jesus is the true king, the king of kings, and there are some people whose hearts are touched by the Lord and they go with the Lord and they want to follow the Lord and they want to follow Jesus as king. And then there are other people who, in a sense, want to rebel against the kingship and the authority and lordship of Jesus and kind of have that heart attitude of, who's Jesus and how can this man help us? And they despise the Lord and his rulership over their life. Well, Saul now is going to get a chance to, in a sense, demonstrate his leadership capacity in chapter 11. It says, then Nahash, the Ammonite, came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. So what's described here, again, Nahash the Ammonite. The Ammonites were another one of those people, nationalities, who were perpetual enemies and a problem with the people of Israel. And Nahash, interestingly enough, his name means serpent. Uh, and in some ways, I think if you look at Nahash, if you want to look at his life from a, a, a typological way, a symbolic way, he's, he's a good fitting picture of what the serpent, the devil himself, the evil one, seeks to do in the lives of God's people. 
even as he's here trying to, in a sense, enslave them and disgrace them and humiliate them to get them to make compromises and concessions. And he now comes to the area of Jabesh Gilead and he basically lines up against them to pose a threat against them militarily to want to conquer them. And as he comes out here, remember Jabesh Gilead is on the Transjordan side, so the eastern side of the Jordan River. The idea is outside of the boundaries of the promised land. And this is where, remember, two and a half tribes of Israel basically chose to settle at. They asked for permission to settle outside of the promised land outside of the boundaries that God had originally intended for his people and they were permitted by God's allowance to settle there but I want you to take notice now what happens and this is what happens all throughout the history of Israel because they settle outside of the promised land and God's original intent for them they therefore were always the ones who were the most vulnerable to attacks from enemies and they were typically the ones who therefore were conquered and in a sense overcome more frequently. Now here they are on the eastern side. Nahash the Ammonite comes up against them and they realize that they are in a sense in a, a dangerous spot. They have no defense. They're vulnerable. So what do they do? It says here that they're willing to make compromises and concessions. And again, these are things that happen when you settle outside of God's best. You just make yourself more vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. Oh, well, I mean, I mean, that's what some people need to do, or some people need to go to church regularly, or some people need to be in fellowship. But I, I mean, I'm a Christian, but I don't need church. I can forsake the assembling of myself together. Yeah, you can. But you know what you also have chosen to do? You've chosen to become an isolated sheep, and you're going to be more vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy because sheep survive or based upon two things. Number one, staying close to the shepherd, and number two, when they are together with the flock. Just watch one of those Discovery Channel things. And what happens? How does Mr. Hyena track down one of those sheep? They, they, they come upon it and they get one animal to, in a sense, get isolated from the flock. And they don't chase the flock. They chase the one isolated animal that's vulnerable. And this is a picture of often what happens in this spiritual life. And here, they're outside of the boundaries of God for his people. They settle there, so now they're vulnerable. And what are they quick to do? They have no sense of being able to defend themselves or stand their ground. They instantly say, just make a covenant with us. We'll serve you. What are they doing? They're saying, we give in. And they're willing to just make a compromise and make a concession with the enemy. And this is often the danger of what happens when we're not in that place, perhaps where God would have intended us to be with a support system around the things of God, with the people of God. We're quicker to just surrender to the enemy, to make concessions, to get involved in things. And here the serpent Nahash comes to them and they propose to him, propose us terms, give us treaty terms. What kind of covenant and compromise can we make? And we'll just serve you. And this is always a sad and unfortunate thing that happens. And so Nahash the Ammonite answered them. And this is somewhat uh, savvy and wise on his part. He's, he can avoid conflict. He can avoid a battle, any casualties. So he says, okay, well, here's the terms of my conditions. On this condition, I'll make a covenant with you that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on Israel. So... He realizes these people are willing to make a concession. They're willing to compromise. So he, in a very cruel way, says, look, not only do I want you to be my servants, 
But I want to disgrace and bring utter humiliation to you and to the people of God as well. So here's what I'll do. I want to put out all of your right eyes. And again, the, the idea of putting out an eye would be to distort someone's perception. If someone loses sight in one eye, their perception is off. Their ability to view things with a proper perspective has been hindered. And again, this is always what the enemy wants to do when he gets his hands on a person's life. He wants to distort someone's perspective. And if you would kind of taint their judgment so they don't see things properly the way that they should. And he wants to, in a sense, diminish a person's ability to be able to see correctly. This is part of the way the devil works as a serpent in people's lives. So he says, look, I want to do this and I don't want you to just be my servant. He says, I also want to disgrace you a little. I want to just shame you and shame the people of God. I don't want to poke out both your eyes because I want you to serve me. I just want to poke out one of your eyes and you can wear your patch like Jack Sparrow and his crew or whatever and just be my servants and be a one-eyed slave and this will just mock the whole nation. I want to put out every one of your right eyes and then you can be my servants. Again, this would cause no, he doesn't have to fight nobody. There would be no conflict, no bloodshed and he would obtain for himself a bunch of one-eyed servants and he would make a reproach of the people of God. So verse 3, the elders of Jabez said to him, uh, hold off for seven days. Get, give us a week to think about those terms. I don't see how this uh, was going to work, but ultimately it did. God used it. That we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel and then if no one comes to save us, we will come out to you. Now, it tells us that Nahash apparently is willing to consent to this, which goes to show you how weak he thought Israel must have been at this point in time. Because instead of just saying, wait a week, are you kidding me? I'll poke out both of your eyes. I'm coming in and taking you all over now. He allows them to have a week because he's thinking in his mind, if you want to be more defeated and embarrassed by asking for help, go ahead and do it. I'll sit out here and wait for a week. It avoids, again, a, a conflict of war. There's no bloodshed. And then I'll just come in and take you over. So they say, give us a week. Let us see if we can rally some help. So verse four, they sent messengers and they came up to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people, it says, lifted up their voices and wept. So they go back to the area where Saul resided at in Gibeah. Again, he's the newly recognized king so they're saying okay let's see what this king is worth now so they go and bring news back to his territory the people begin to weep and to be concerned over this oppression that the serpent Nahash of the Ammonite people has brought upon the people of God and it says verse 5 now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field and Saul said what troubles the people that they weep and they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. So as they're bringing news, the people are beginning to weep and there's great concern and expression of the tragedy that's happening, the oppression of this man Nahash the Ammonite against the people of God. And here comes Saul and notice where Saul's doing. Saul's out working the fields. I mean, it shows you that this man in his original condition certainly was, I mean, he's a hard worker. He's demonstrating humility. I mean, here he is someone who is just appointed and recognized as the king of Israel. And what's he doing? He's doing common, 
humble work. I mean, this, this is good stuff here. This is servant leadership. Here's a guy, he's plowing the fields. He's not just sitting on his ivory throne. And well, this is well, all I do is king stuff. And, and instead of that, we see him, he's out working in the fields. He's tending the animals. And, and, and it's at this point as he comes in, a report is given to him of what's going on. And verse six, notice, then the spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news and his anger was greatly aroused. So again, as we saw in the prior chapter, God's spirit comes upon the life of Saul again. And here the spirit of God comes upon Saul to anoint him to respond as a leader for the people. And the spirit of the Lord comes upon him in empowerment and anointing. And notice what it says as he hears what's happening to the people of God, the, the, the mistreatment, how they're being harmed how they're being oppressed and how the enemy is trying to subdue them and take them captive to be his servants. It says when he heard this, the spirit comes upon him and what's his response? It says his anger is greatly aroused as the result of the spirit of God coming upon his life. Now notice this. This is the Holy Spirit coming upon a man's life and indicating that it was the moral and spiritually appropriate response to be angry. He is justifiably angry here. This is righteous indignation, if you will, and this is the result of the Holy Spirit coming upon someone's life. I love in the New Testament, there's that one occasion where uh, Paul, as he's around doing his ministry, and it says that this slave girl who was possessed by a demonic spirit and was following uh, uh, Paul all around in his ministry, causing disturbances, at a certain point it says the Holy Spirit comes upon uh, Paul, and it says being greatly annoyed. Oh, man, that's really neat. <laughs> the Spirit of God comes upon him, and he's greatly annoyed. But what's he greatly annoyed? By the efforts of the enemy. He's annoyed, he's disturbed that the enemy is running interference with what the will of God's supposed to be, with what the work of God should be accomplishing. And here, I think this is a beautiful thing because it shows that sometime the right moral and spiritual response to certain situations is indeed to be angry. And this is something the Spirit of God, because what is this is what the heart of God would be towards this situation, because people were being mistreated. People were being taken advantage of. How was Jesus' response when he went into the house of God and he saw the money changers and those buying and selling doves? Jesus was what? Angry. He was angry because the people of God were being taken advantage of. And there were sinful things being done that were hurting and harming individuals. And there is a time that sometimes this is the beginning of the inception even of, of ministry or the ability to answer God's call where perhaps you see a situation and you realize this is wrong what's being done to people. These people are being treated wrongly or these people are being abused or hurt or harmed or taken advantage of. I wish I could tell you that Every part of pastoral ministry has over the years been just always being happy and joyful. But there have been times where situations have been brought to my attention where something is going on and the righteous and spiritual response is to be incredibly angry. 
that a man's abusing his wife or a father's molesting his children in the church. These are legitimate situations that transpire and the right response in that is not to, in a sense, be passive. Oh, well, what, no, the right response is to be stirred with anger. This needs to stop. This needs to be addressed. This needs to be dealt with. And there are situations at times God will bring across our path when evil, sinful, harmful, hurtful things are being done and you should be stirred to be angry. It should cause you to, in a sense, be awakened to say, I have got to do something to help here. I cannot stand by idly and not assist or not get involved or not help in this situation. I need to do something to step into the matter, to help in some way, to defend the cause of those perhaps who are being harmed or taken advantage of or hurt in some way. And that would be the heart of God in the matter. And here it says Saul is, in a sense, empowered with the Spirit and he's aroused with great anger because of what this serpent, the Ammonite man, was trying to do to the people, wanting to put out their eye and take advantage of people and disgrace them. And it says he stirred to anger. And verse 7, so he took a yoke of oxen, cut them in pieces, that's pretty graphic, and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of the messengers saying, whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. Now, that's a pretty forced draft. Isn't that there? Talk about getting drafted in that way. Here is a bloody carcass of an animal. If you don't show up, this is going to happen to all your animals. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people. And they came out with one consent. And when he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah, 30,000. And they sent to the messengers who came, saying, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who were hoping for some help or deliverance, imagine hearing this come back from the messengers, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, by noon, by daybreak, you shall have help. And then the messengers came and reported to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, and they were glad. I bet they were. Probably put all their eye patches away and all right, yes. You know, they're probably going around practicing how to function with one eye and all of a sudden, hey, great, help's on the way. Nothing to worry about anymore. And, and how wonderful the Bible says, you know, like a cup of cold water is so is good news from a far country. And sometimes to hear that kind of news, that good word, that, that promise of the Lord that help is on the way. Imagine what it's like, put yourself in them sandals to realize they are in a crisis they can't resolve and to hear a word come back, the message, tomorrow you shall have help. Help's on the way. And perhaps sometimes in the situations we're facing, I don't know, maybe you're facing something tonight and perhaps the Lord would want to encourage you, listen, give it a day. Let me work. The Bible says with the Lord a day is a thousand years. The thousand years is like a day. The bottom line is at the appointed hour, at the right day, God can send help. And perhaps the Lord would want you to be encouraged. Listen, help is on the way. Wait on the Lord. You sent for help. You've asked for deliverance. Give God a chance to raise up the deliverance. There was an army, a mustard army now of 330,000 men ready to come and to help these people to bring assistance. And they believed, again, what proof did they have? 
All they heard was there are people coming. They don't have no proof. All they have is what? In a sense, the word of a messenger, really, which was the word of the Lord, that, that help was coming, and they rejoiced. They believed in faith, and they were glad. Help is coming. And therefore, the men of Jabesh said to the people of Ammon, tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you, somewhat sarcastic, because they know help is in the hills. So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch. So they came at the early morning hours. This was strategic because they could catch them off guard while it was still dusk and before the daylight broke. And they killed the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who were scattered so that the two of them were no two of them were left together. And then the people said to Samuel, who is he who said shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. So here's what happens. Saul shows up as promised the next day. He divides the people, verse 11 says, into three separate companies, attacks at a strategic time. Now again, let me bring to your attention. What is Saul? He's a farm boy, right? He's a farm boy. He's walking behind herds in fields. He's plowing fields with oxen and, and he's looking around for his father's lost donkey. Where did all of a sudden he get this military intelligence? How all of a sudden does he know how to be a really good general and command the battle? I mean, how does he know how to do this? I'll tell you how he knows how to do it because the spirit of the Lord came upon his life. And he simply rose up in obedience to answer the call of God. And when you answer the call of God, God will not call you to something that he will not give you the grace to equip you to do. And so God obviously gives him supernatural wisdom and the ability to make good decisions and to reason this out. God called him to a place of leadership. God called him to respond in this way. And therefore he comes strategically. He rallies people. He divides them up into three companies. He attacks at the right time. And they have a very successful victory in the process. And you know, that, that's a good encouragement because if you step into what God is prompting you to do, Sometimes, I said earlier, maybe there may be a situation that arises and it's somewhat, I mean, difficult and traumatic and, and it begins with you being just so burdened and awakened. I've got to help in this situation. I mean, this is, this is wrong and this is complicated and it's going to get messy. But I tell you this, if you answer the call of the Lord and the spirit of the Lord comes upon you to do it, God will give you unique wisdom to know how to handle it to know how to direct it, to know how to guide the situation. I, listen, I can tell you this, in what mentorship and equipping and assistance and help that I received being prepared for ministry, uh, somehow I missed the session or two when, when my pastor sat me down and said, okay, now this is what you do if you find out that a father in your church is molesting his daughter. This is how you handle that. Somehow we forgot to discuss that. But it's amazing how when those scenarios arise, the Spirit of the Lord gives you the capacity that you don't have in your humanity to know, okay, this is how this needs to be handled. And this is what you need to do. 
And this is how you need to engage law enforcement and help the family navigate that and get people in safe places and, and find the balance between doing what is right and at the same time trying to be compassionate and to be sensitive or uh, domestic violence situations or suicide. I mean, sometimes these kind of scenarios present themselves and we think, Lord, I don't, I've never engaged in that kind of battle before. Saul had never been in a battle before, but the battle belongs to the Lord. And if you step into what he's asked you to do, he'll give you the wisdom that you need and enable you to walk through it successfully and victoriously. And look what happens here. When they have this victory, now all of a sudden, all the people who are supportive of Saul, they're amped up and they're thinking, man, we were sick. where are those rebels that were saying, who can this... Who's this man, Saul, and how's he going to save us? Remember, we read that at the end of chapter 10. And so all of a sudden now, those who are excited about the victory, they say, where are those rebels that were saying, how can Saul save us? Bring them out here. We're on, a, we're on a killing spree. Let's just get rid of them too. Let's just eliminate them from the kingdom. And they're ready to bring down the hammer on them. Now, put yourself in Saul's sandals. In your humanity, this would be a very easy time to say, yeah, that sounds like a really good idea. I don't need rebels in my kingdom anyway. And here the Lord has now validated Saul and he's in a sense indicated his favor is upon Saul. It would have been very easy for Saul in his humanity to capitalize on the situation and to basically abuse his authority a little bit at this point. But to his credit, verse 13, Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. So Saul here very wisely maintains humility and he says, look, nobody's being put to death this day. And you see what he does? He directs the people's attention away from their impulses and their feelings and the momentum of just their desires and being caught up and and he puts their attention where? On the Lord. And he says, look, this ain't about a Saul thing. This wasn't me. He says, the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. This is a good beginning to leadership here. Certainly Saul goes downhill as we move forward. But he says, today, this was the Lord that did this. We just stepped into what God was doing and made ourselves available to be useful. But he says, the Lord has accomplished salvation. And he puts the people's focus back upon the Lord and any good leader should do that any good servant of the Lord should do that not to want to draw attention to oneself or take credit to oneself but to put the focus back upon the Lord and that it was his work and his power that was what helped and assisted and then Samuel said to the people come let us go to Gilgal and remember Gilgal was the place they came to when they first crossed the Jordan into the promised land It was sort of the place where they made a covenant with God spiritually. The men were circumcised. It was a renewal of their commitment to God there at Gilgal. So he says, let's go back to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. The idea is they're going to kind of go and have a coronation ceremony to recognize Saul as the king in a proper way. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So on the heels of this battle and this victory of what the Lord has done, Saul directs the attention back to the Lord where it should be. And then Samuel, this wise older prophet, he says to the people, listen, let's hit the pause button on all this. 
And he says, let's go back to Gilgal. Let's go back to that special place where we've met with God before and renew the kingdom there. And there's almost this picture here of sort of a spiritual renewal, spiritual revival as the people go, they coronate Saul as their king there. In a sense, they officially embrace, embrace what God's will was and what the Lord was doing. They embrace him as the one who the Lord raised up for their king. And it says they then began to make sacrifices of peace offerings there before the Lord. So they just begin to engage in worship offering sacrifices to the Lord. And there's this beautiful picture here of, as I said, of, of sort of a spiritual renewal. Notice what it involves. It involves a, a, a time of embracing what God was doing because God was giving to them Saul as their king at this point. So they're in a sense saying, Lord, not our will. They wanted to get rid of those who had a rebellious heart. Lord, this is what you are doing. We embrace what you're doing. We accept what you're doing and they're making sacrifices. They're in a sense is this offering of worship, peace offerings. Remember where those time of fellowship offerings where you would partake of a part of the meat and a part of it would be given over on the altar to the Lord and you would share like a communal meal. And it says they're just rejoicing greatly. And what they're rejoicing in is in what the Lord has done. They're just rejoicing in the fact that Lord... You are in this, you are involved and you're in control and there's sort of this spiritual revival or small renewal spiritually taking place in their lives. Now, I think we're going to stop there for this evening. Chapter 12 is a very interesting chapter that comes on the heels of what's happening here in chapter 11. They go from worshiping the Lord to really as their hearts are tender and open to the Lord, Samuel the prophet, as he's about to move off of the scene, is going to bring strong reproof into their lives. But because their hearts are in the right place and they're in an attitude of worship and they're looking to the Lord, their hearts are receptive to hear the truth that they need to hear. And I'll tell you, one of the things that is a clear mark of spiritual renewal beginning to happen in our life, when there's a renewal of the work of God's Spirit beginning to rise up in our heart, it's not just happy hallelujah and joy-filled rejoicing praise the Lord. There's also a part of that that is a genuine willingness to say, God, tell me the truth. I want to hear the truth. Speak to me, Lord. Deal with the sin in my life. Help me to be in a place where my heart is right before you. In chapter 12, we'll sort of turn the corner as Samuel begins to speak very strong things in their lives that they need to hear. Let's stand. Let's pray together.